0: Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. In this 1997 conversation, Professor S. Fred Singer, President of the Science and Environmental Policy Project, and Independent Research Fellow, Thomas C. Schelling, Economics, University of Maryland, discussed the numerous models, theories, and methods used to explain the notion of global warming. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast.
1: We're here this afternoon to discuss the issue of climate change and global warming, And uh, I'm here with my good friend, uh, Tom Schelling. I'm Fred Singer. I have the magnificent title of Distinguished Research Professor at George Mason University, where we're sitting now. Uh, But I spend most of my time running a a little think tank we call the Science and Environmental Policy Project, which is concerned full-time with issues like uh, global warming, ozone depletion, acid rain, and other environmental issues that uh, seem to occupy the public. Uh, But before we get into the uh, global warming issue, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, I'm uh,
0: on the faculty of the Department of Economics and the School of Public Affairs at the University of Maryland. And I got involved in this subject, Greenhouse Warming Climate Change, back in 1980 when the National Academy of Sciences established a committee to look into what was then called the carbon dioxide question. And I spent two years getting very well educated by all the appropriate scientific disciplines. I was the the economist, one of the two economists in the group. And we issued a report in 1983, and uh, little was heard from for several years after that, but eventually in the late 1980s, when a few hot summers got attention, things began to get active again and in the subject. And whenever anybody looked up an economist who was familiar with the subject, my name was always there. So I've been...
1: interesting how the subject uh, really only became hot, so to speak, uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. Because it, it goes back uh, over 100 years. Yeah. I've just reviewed uh, uh, the whole issue in a book I'm doing uh, called Global Warming unfinished business, which means that this is gonna go on for some time, there are a lot of things we don't understand about the science, and uh, this is something that uh, I hope we'll get into. But uh, perhaps, uh, since you mentioned your involvement, uh, mine goes back to uh, 1968, I remember the date, because I organized a, a symposium for the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Houston. And one of the stellar participants whom I then met for the first time, was uh, Roger Revelle, mm. the uh, famous oceanographer from Scripps Institution of uh, Oceanography in La Jolla. Uh, he's considered to be the father of greenhouse warming. Uh, at that time, he had already spent uh, 11 years uh, taking measurements of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and he established for the first time, I think, uh, that carbon dioxide really increased in the atmosphere as... A, result of human activities, as a result of the burning of fossil fuels, but surprisingly he was not the least bit concerned about it. I remember he called it a grand geophysical experiment. He said, now we will find out what uh, these these changes in the atmosphere could do to climate, and And he had a very optimistic point of view. He felt that carbon dioxide would lead to uh, a better growth of plants uh, Uh, Better agricultural yields and so on. But above all, he thought this was an interesting scientific experiment. That was his view then. Mm
0: -hmm. Most people would rather not perform the experiment.
1: (laughs) Well, you have to remember at the time, 68, and throughout the 70s, uh, the climate had been cooling. The, The temperatures, world temperatures, reached a peak around 1940, 45, and after that, they were cooling everywhere, in the United States, in Europe, and throughout the world. And the feeling then was, in 1968, at the symposium, from the experts who were there, like uh, uh, Reed Bryson from the University of Wisconsin, and others, that we were coming into a new ice age. And uh, there were books being published at that time by other uh, scary books, you know, the coming ice age. I They are going to freeze in the dark, and this is going to be the, uh, the end of human existence on the planet. Interesting, some of the people who are now writing books about the coming uh, global warming were then writing books about the coming global ice age. Some of the very same people. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, climate uh, took another turn. And uh, around in the late 70s, it started to warm again. And uh, as you said quite correctly, in the 80s, we had some very hot summers in the United States. And that really caught public attention. I remember the uh, uh, summer of 1988 when we had a big drought. And one of my scientific colleagues, Jim Hansen, stood up before Senator Gore and his committee and uh, assured them that uh, he was 99% sure that the greenhouse effect is really here and global warming has really come. And uh, it it precipitated a a lot of- uh, Is he still
0: equally sure? Hmm? Is he still
1: equally sure? Uh, Yes, but uh, for different reasons now. his last uh, uh, paper, uh, sort of, perhaps we get into that, kind of demolishes the present uh, scientific uh, view that there isn't. You see, there hasn't been a warming as, as we might have expected. The, the, the observations do not agree with the forecasts of climate models. And that's very disturbing because all of our predictions of the future warming depend on climate models. You cannot predict the future without a mathematical model. But uh, before you believe the model, you have to verify it in some way, you have to validate it. I mean, how do you know the model is good? There are lots of models around. Which one do you believe? So you have to validate it. And we have not been able, nobody has been able to validate the models that we have now. Uh, Until, uh, so we have to explain why don't we see uh, the kind of warming that the models predict. Uh, The current view has been. actually it has been since the last two years, that uh, human activities also, in addition to putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, put uh, particles uh, aerosols in the atmosphere, which reflect sunlight and therefore cause a cooling. And this cooling offsets the warming, and therefore we don't see the warming that should be there. Well, almost everyone believed this until a few months ago, uh, when uh, Jim Hansen again, published, I think, a very good paper to show that
0: the aerosol theory doesn't amount to anything. So now we're... Uh, I amount to anything, you mean the theory itself is no good or quantitatively it quantitatively, couldn't, quantitatively couldn't account for? Quantitatively, it doesn't for, account for yeah, it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay.
1: So scientifically, I must say that we're now in a very interesting situation. Uh, we have very good observations now, thanks to weather satellites. Weather satellites, for the first time, can observe the, the whole Earth with a single instrument so that we know that the same instrument is seeing all of the all of the globe, so we get worldwide temperatures. Uh, these are very precise measurements. Unfortunately, they've only been going on since one thousand, nine hundred and seventy-nine. So we have uh, barely twenty years' worth of data, which is not very long as far as climate change goes. But the data are very good, and instead of warming, uh, substantial warming as the models predict, the the satellite data, the weather satellite data, show a slight cooling could be could be zero you know it's a, there's always a possibility of some uncertainty mm-hmm. but uh, if you take the data at at face value they show a slight cooling and that's a very disturbing situation we have to explain that somehow
0: how do you explain it um <laughs> there's
1: several explanations possible but i'm glad you asked me that question uh, one of course is uh, that we are um uh, that there's something being being within the atmosphere that opposes the warming that should be happening the warming by the way should come about because clearly carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases have increased in the atmosphere there's no question about that and everyone accepts the fact that there's human activities of various sorts that have caused this increase in the concentration of greenhouse gases for example in addition to carbon dioxide we see an increase in methane uh, which we know comes from uh, Uh, rice paddies and raising of cattle. So agricultural activities uh, contribute to methane. We also see an increase in uh, nitrous oxide, which comes from fertilizers. So the fact that the human population is growing is having an impact on the atmosphere. The question really is, is this change in the atmosphere producing an impact on climate? There should be some impact. There must be something. But we don't see the warming that the climate models predict. So uh, the, the best idea that's been put forward is that at the same time, while we're increasing the greenhouse gas concentration, we're also increasing the cloudiness of the earth. And clouds, as you know, reflect sunlight back out into space and therefore tend to cool the earth, so you have cloudiness to some extent, offsetting the warming from greenhouse gases. I
0: I thought that some of the increased cloudiness might be due to aerosols, which facilitate cloud formation, don't they?
1: Uh, Cloudiness could come about for two reasons. One, uh, just an internal atmospheric effect, you see. A warming of the ocean would create more evaporation of of seawater, which more humidity in the atmosphere, and therefore more cloudiness. So that's an internal effect. In addition to that, You're quite correct. Human activities are also causing uh, more cloudiness by increasing uh, aerosols, haze, and other pollution, other kinds of pollution.
0: Now, can these satellites measure the net impact of cloudiness because clouds both reflect and potentially absorb? And I wonder, are are we getting measures now of what clouds are doing? Um, Unfortunately, it's very difficult to determine
1: whether there's any long-term change in cloudiness. Uh, I wish we could do that, but uh, the best the satellites can do is to determine where the clouds are, the, the distribution of clouds, and this, of course, is it. They can't measure
0: the reflectivity of clouds.
1: They measure the reflectivity of individual clouds, but they haven't been able to determine whether there's a long-term change in reflectivity. That's what we're interested in. For this, you need extremely good calibrations, and uh, we're not there yet. There's another theory, by the way, as to why the climate is not warming. It has to do with water vapor. Water vapor is a more important greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. It's the most important greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. But water vapor is there for natural reasons. And human activities really can't affect water vapor very much. So the question is, would uh, a warming of the ocean cause water vapor in the upper atmosphere to increase or decrease? And that's being debated right now. It's a very subtle point, but a very important point. Then there's another theory. We're full of theories, by the way, to explain <laughs> why, why the climate models don't agree with the observations. Another theory is that the sun is causing uh, a cooling. Now, how would the sun cause a cooling? Well, the sun is supposed to warm the Earth. Well, of course, it does warm the Earth. But there are variations in this, the output of radiation from the sun. So sometimes the warming is more intense and sometimes it is less intense. So the sun can and probably does cause climate fluctuations. And uh, these changes in solar radiation uh, is something we've just been measuring for a fairly short time uh, with satellites again. And uh, the theories of how the sun could affect the climate are still being
0: developed. Do the people who construct the models that you referred to earlier Are they as puzzled as you are about why the the original forecasts aren't being borne out? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, Some people are and some are not. Uh, Do they acknowledge that there's a difference between what is being observed and what 10 or 15 years ago they predicted? Well, you know, uh, people who construct models would like to believe that their models are really good,
1: that is, that they really represent the atmosphere. So they're looking for all sorts of excuses as to why uh, the atmosphere doesn't behave the way the models should. So this aerosol effect, for example, or the cloud effect, are simply uh, invented things, uh, proposed things, hypothesized things to explain why the models and the and the observations don't agree. Uh, But there are people who are very thoughtful about this, and are really trying to uh, see if they can model. They improve the models, make them more, more complicated, to also take clouds into account. Unfortunately, that's extremely difficult. The models are, are very good people, the outstanding meteorologists and climate scientists, but it's just a very difficult thing to do to represent the true atmosphere in all of its details, particularly since the models are still very coarse, you know, uh, the model doesn't Calculate everything at every point on the Earth. The uh, uh, what we call the grid size is something like uh, 200 miles. So you know, if you have yeah, but should,
0: should should that affect the forecast of the average global surface atmospheric yeah, temperature, it, it does. or does that only affect the translation of an average warming into climate changes?
1: Well, if you if your resolution is as as poor as 200 miles. It means that you cannot simulate a cloud properly because clouds tend to be a lot smaller. So what they have to do is to parameterize the clouds. In other words, they have to guess how the clouds might behave and stick that into the model. And that's where the problems arise.
0: Now, I've always been—I well, can't say always. for the last few years—I've been struck with the fact that the the uncertainties, even the the, the First order uncertainty, what average warming should be expected with a particular increase in greenhouse gas concentrations? The uncertainty there, originally the Charney Committee of the National Academy of Sciences back in 1977 or eight, said the the warming could be anywhere from 1.5 to 4.5 degrees Celsius. And my impression is that nobody has been ready to substitute a different estimate for that one even though that was 20 years ago and a lot of money has gone into research in the interim. And my interpretation is that climate has turned out to be vastly more complicated than was perceived 20 years ago and things that 20 years ago were not thought to matter much like clouds are now recognized as making a lot of difference and therefore this is a field in which with increasing knowledge due to do increasing resources going into the research, with increasing knowledge is an increasing appreciation of how complicated the yeah. subject is.
1: But yeah. I'm basically optimistic. I, I think uh, the modelers will improve their models. Uh, it has to do also with the fact that computers are getting faster. And that means that you can have a better resolution. Instead of 200 miles, maybe by next year you can have a resolution of 100 miles. And maybe by the year 2000, you can have a resolution of 10 miles. And then you, when you get to that stage, you can resolve uh, mountain ranges and uh, inland uh, lakes and other things that do affect the climate in a very substantial way. Yeah. So I'm basically optimistic. Uh, uh, and also, I think our observations, our satellite observations, we'll have, we'll have another 10 years and we'll have a, a better handle on what is really happening in the atmosphere. But it's interesting that the Charney Committee uh, gave numbers of 1.5 to 4.5 degrees centigrade uh, Celsius uh, for for a doubling of the carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide is supposed to double sometime in the next century, maybe in 2050. Some people think in the year 2100. It's hard to forecast these things, as you know, because we can't forecast population too well and we can't forecast economic development too well. And that gets into your field. But in any case, when, when carbon dioxide doubles, if and when it doubles, uh, the temperature is supposed to have increased by 1.5 to 4.5 degrees centigrade. But we don't believe this anymore. At least I don't believe this anymore. I don't think many people believe this anymore, even though the models still give the same numbers. Well,
0: but I, I remember quoting the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1992, I think. They said, we have re-examined the data, and we see no reason to change the estimates from 20 years ago. Now, is that because um, they're unwilling to put up an alternative number that would then come under criticism, or do they really believe that the estimate of 20 years ago is still about as good as you can do? I think there's a conservative
1: element here, and they tend to stick to numbers that they have published before, Uh, because to change the numbers would, Uh, leave them open to criticism that uh, perhaps their predictions are not as robust as they claim they are. But at the same time, they have to face the fact that the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases have now increased by 50% over the pre-industrial value. So we're halfway towards a doubling now. So we should be seeing a very substantial warming, if indeed the models are correct in the sense that they predict everything that's happening in the
0: atmosphere, mm-hmm. but we don't see it. Yeah, you referred to the robustness of the estimates, but you know, a prediction that a doubling of the greenhouse gas concentration could lead to anything from 1.5 to 4.5 degrees Celsius increase in the average temperature, that's not a very robust estimate. That's the upper limit is three times the lower limit.
1: Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Actually, it's probably worse than that because the ex- the experiments that have been done with models, by the way, the models are quite modest. They call uh, they, they don't call their models results predictions. They're very careful. Now, these are not predictions. They say these are just experiments. We, we're just experimenting with different parameterizations, with different assumptions to see what we get. So the, the modelers, to their credit, don't take the models too seriously. They They realize that the models are very poor approximations to the real atmosphere, but what they've done in, in modeling is to show that if you just change the types of clouds slightly, if you change the droplet size in the clouds slightly, you get very different results. Uh, Mitchell in England has been modeling uh, the climate using different types of clouds, cloud parameterizations, and he gets up to from about uh, one degree to five degrees, just by changing the cloud uh, Mm -hmm. droplet size distribution. So it shows you how sensitive the results are to the assumptions that are made in the models.
0: Now, one one, uh, thing I remember from uh, almost 20 years ago was that the argument was that, that any predicted increase in average atmospheric temperature was an equilibrium temperature that is allowing the warming process to come into equilibrium And the estimate was that the oceans, acting as a cooling reservoir, might retard the warming by anywhere from a decade to half a century. I don't hear about that anymore. What happened to that notion that the oceans would
1: slow down? The oceans certainly would slow down the warming to some extent. But we now have, uh, I guess over the last five years now, improved the models to such an extent that they're now coupled atmosphere ocean models. So the, the models now encompass the ocean as well, for the first time. Before that, we had separate models, atmosphere and ocean, and then there was some kind of a fit that was made, yeah. which was always a little bit artificial.
0: But then, then if if it was thought that the oceans could delay the warming by anywhere up to 50 years, isn't that a possible explanation for why we don't perceive the warming that might have been expected?
1: They don't, uh, they don't uh, uh, t- take that anymore. The, the couple of models don't show this large delay, even though the ocean does have a high heat capacity. Yeah. yeah. I accept uh, the one clear uh, statement in the IPCC report, that is the UN uh, Science Advisory Group, where they say that the climate now Right now, should be warming at the rate of 0.3 degrees centigrade per decade.
0: 0.3 degrees. Yeah, but now, that's a, as that's you a, said earlier, it's a that, half a degree that, Fahrenheit. That must include an estimate of what's going to happen to population, what's going to happen to economic no, development, no, right what's now. going
1: to happen to. No, no, right now they, they they carry the current rate of increase, the current with the present concentration of carbon dioxide should be according to. The IPCC uh, half degree Fahrenheit. Per you, mean, you
0: mean if there were no further increase in greenhouse gas concentrations? Uh,
1: if the greenhouse gas concentration were to increase at the present rate, which is half a percent a year, uh, that oh, should be right. yeah, yeah. So that, uh, but we don't see that. Yeah. In fact, as I mentioned, we we the satellites show a cooling, which is yeah. very embarrassing to the uh, to models yeah. and somehow. Let me let me, let me resolved.
0: break in with a point that always bothers me, and that is that because this is referred to as the issue of global warming and because we're here talking about whether we perceive the warming or not, uh, most people seem to think that if climate does change the way it will be perceived will be as warming everywhere. Now my understanding is that the models wouldn't predict warming everywhere, they would predict warmer some places, cooler other places, wetter some places, drier some places, maybe more cloudiness some places, less cloudiness other places. And in general, all the things that go to make up climate, precipitation, winter precipitation, summer precipitation, winds, storms, all of these things would be involved. And if if the climate change were enough to be noticeable, it would probably not be noticed as warming, but be noticed as changes in all the all the things that go to make up weather and climate. Yeah.
1: Let me just summarize what the, what the models, in fact, do. You're right, the models do not calculate an average. They they calculate a detailed distribution of various climate parameters in, in different geographic locations all around the Earth. So they're global in that sense. And then uh, for some quick summary, they take an average. But averages, as you know, uh, misleading or can be misleading. What the models do show is, first of all, they don't agree with each other. They get very different geographic distributions. Each model gets a different geographic distribution. About the only thing they agree on is that it's going to get warmer, although the, the spread is, as you mentioned before... But not
0: warmer everywhere, just warmer uh, on average. On average, by 300%. Is, the, is And the, the average is not averaged over the population, it's averaged over the globe. Over the globe, of yeah. course.
1: And they also agree that there's going to be a global average increase in precipitation. But this may mean more <laughs> rain in some places and less rain in other places. And they also agree that the warming is going to be more pronounced at higher latitudes and less pronounced at lower latitudes. And they also agree that the warming is going to be mainly at night. So it'll be uh, a rise in the, in the uh, lower temperatures, that is in the temperature minimum to rise in winter temperatures and nighttime temperatures. By the way, uh, agriculturalists who I've talked to like this very much because clearly the effect will be to lengthen the growing season and have fewer frosts. And uh, that in general is very beneficial for agriculture. The other uh, effect that's being debated right now is what will happen to sea level. The standard prediction has been that sea level will rise as a result of global warming. This is now being challenged. And the reason it's being challenged is because there are two separate effects acting. Uh, if it gets warmer, it'll, it'll result in the melting of glaciers and a thermal expansion of the ocean. That is, the warm water will occupy more space. It'll, it'll expand, like everything on metals. Everything expands when it warms. Uh, that will re- lead to a rise in sea level. But at the same time, because of higher evaporation and more precipitation, you get more rainfall over the Antarctic. So you get more snow and ice accumulation. And the question is, which is more important? Is it, uh, you see, if you get ice accumulation in the Antarctic, you're really taking water from the ocean and sticking it up in the Antarctic, which causes a drop in sea level. So which is more important?
0: Yeah, but now look. uh, Suppose the estimate is, as at least it used to be, sea level might rise at half a centimeter per year. A little. Fifty centimeters in a century.
1: About a millimeter per year. Yes, is what the.
0: the, Well, it used to be four or five millimeters. Yes, it's gone down. It's gone down. Yes. Okay. When it was half a centimeter per year, Antarctica, all of it, is about a 40th of the area of the oceans. So you would then need 20 centimeters of water-equivalent snow every year in Antarctica. Is, is that a plausible quantity of snow for Antarctica?
1: It's plausible. And in fact, if you look at data, and uh, the reason one has to look at data, I think, is because it is not possible to really predict theoretically what will happen because you have opposing effects, and each one of these effects is very uncertain. So what one has to to do is look at data, and we now have data for the last 100 years, roughly, of sea level, and we have data of the last 100 years for temperature. How do they compare? Interestingly enough, and this is a a new result, uh, which I hope to feature in my book, it shows that when temperatures rise, as they did between 1920 and 1940 sea level drops when temperatures drop as they did between 1940 and 1970 sea level rises so they're anti-correlated now this may be a coincidence and nothing is sure in this business correlations are suggestive but uh, one and one needs to of course have data now, on
0: now could that could that possibly be an antarctica effect
1: Antarctica is the major is the major player in this. Antarctic ice accumulation really is what determines uh, sea level.
0: But my understanding was that there's very little snowfall in Antarctica, so there would have to be a huge increase yeah. to make a, yeah. a noticeable difference. Yes. Mm-hmm. And has anybody observed a huge increase or it, a huge decrease as things go up and down? Uh, unfortunately, again, data. We need. We don't have data
1: as yet, to an ice accumulation in Antarctica. That's what you really want. What you want is to know, you want to know how much ice accumulated in each year in the past 100 years.
0: But there are a lot of people living there. Wouldn't they notice the difference if there were enough change in precipitation in Antarctica to account for a change in sea level? We do
1: have uh, data on that, and uh, the changes are, the fluctuations are large. Uh, We don't know if there's a long-term trend. See, Antarctica has only been explored, scientifically speaking, since 1957. We've had uh, what is it, uh, maybe half a dozen stations in Antarctica since ni- since the International Geophysical Year in 1957. So that's uh, 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the impact will be then of uh, a warming? What do you think we should do about it, if if and when it comes? Are you alarmed by it?
0: I I tend to be more persuaded than you are that we should expect climate change. I doubt very much whether the impact on a country like the United States would be uh, serious, possibly not even noticeable. Now that's partly because there's almost nothing we do in the United States by way of earning our living it is really significantly affected by climate. You know, we we, we conduct a conversation like this in any state of the union. Um, Manufacturing can take place in almost any state of the union. It's only a little affected by weather and climate, and less so with air-conditioned buildings now. About the only part of the gross national product that is affected by climate is agriculture and fisheries and forests. and some outdoor sports activities. For the most part, the outdoor sports activities don't appear to be much affected by yeah. weather and climate. We didn't have golf tournaments in Georgia, Massachusetts, Palm Springs, or anywhere. Uh, the estimates are that recreation probably benefits on balance from more precipitation and warmer temperatures that is a longer Yes. Vacation season.
1: Agriculture, I suppose, is important for less developed countries.
0: Uh, Much so. There are a lot of countries in which agriculture is the main way that half the population earns its living. And it can be up to a third of the gross national product. So in a way, they're vulnerable to climate change. Whether climate change would be adverse for them, I don't know. But at least in, in this country, if the worst possible happened and agriculture became twice as expensive. Uh, since it's only about 3% of the GNP, it would mean that uh, we lost 1.5% of GNP as the extra cost of producing sure. food. And we're talking about superimposing that on the economy of 50 or 100 years from now, when per capita income will probably have doubled. So that losing 1% or 2% out of an increase from 100 to 200%, I think would really not be a significant yeah. No, nothing worth worrying about.
1: But then there's a the matter of uh, fertilization by CO2 in well, the atmosphere. It's, many it's, agriculturalists would... would uh, yeah, there are some crops that are
0: beneficially affected by CO2 and, uh, and various kinds of crops that uh, need to lose less moisture if they can get a higher concentration of CO2 in, during their photosynthesis. So I wouldn't worry about Japan, North America, or Western Europe. I think the countries that may have to worry are the ones that are still uh, reasonably primitive in their mode of agriculture and heavily dependent on agriculture. And that leads me to believe that uh, leaving aside for the moment possible impacts on nature, on wilderness, on species, on things that, that you know ecologists worry about, just thinking about material standards of living, anything that we did to retard climate change would be mainly for the benefit of countries in the developing world. And and there I think their best defense against climate change is likely to be their own development. And uh, at the rate many of those countries have been improving, China, India, Indonesia, Latin America, in another 50 years they will be a lot less dependent on agriculture than they are now. But at least they're, they're the countries that are potentially vulnerable in a way that we and the West Europeans and the Japanese are not.
1: You know, I share your optimistic view, but for a different reason. Uh, from climate science, we know that the effects, the uh, warming effects will be much less in the tropical areas than they are at higher latitudes. So they will see less of a change than, than uh, we see here. Yeah, but- But, but also the, the fertilization effect the CO2 fertilization effect, uh, according to what, I, what I've learned about it, can be really quite important yeah. and improve agricultural yields.
0: But you, you mentioned earlier that in another 10 years, we may be, the models may be able to take mountains into account. Um, yes. What really matters in a place like India, or even a place like California for agriculture, is snow in the mountains rather than ground-level temperature. And if we don't know what's going to happen to snow in the Himalayas, we don't know what's going to happen to the main rivers that go into Burma, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan. So that I think for them, our ignorance about what happens in the mountains with climate change is a major uncertainty. And even in California, a drought in California typically is not a lack of rainfall, it's a lack of snow in the mountains because that's where the water is used for for irrigation. Yes. So I, I think we, we don't know what climate change will do to a country like India. Um, we can argue that maybe the CO2 concentration on balance is beneficial. We may argue so, yes. that, that the warming may not occur much on average if it is indeed a warming. But I think what's crucially important is what's going to happen to their, the snow in the mountains, which yes. is uh, just as we're ignorant about snow in Antarctica and what may change it. I think it's we don't know much about snow in high mountains.
1: True, I don't think we can even predict this except to say that the models give us increased precipitation in all cases without being clear as to where the precipitation will come down. Yeah,
0: and th- and it makes a difference where it It comes does make out. a difference,
1: yes. Yeah. yes. But as I say, I'm, I am optimistic about the fact that CO2 is increasing because I think it's probably a very good thing for agriculture, you know? Uh, Going back into geological history, uh, our concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere now is at at an all-time low, geologically speaking. Uh, About 400 million years ago, 500 million years ago in that area, it was uh, about 20 times larger than what it is now. And it's been steadily decreasing and reached a minimum probably in our last ice age. And if CO2 ever falls below a certain level, that's the end of plants and agriculture as we know it. Because mm. without CO2 in the atmosphere, plants can't yeah, but, survive. No,
0: nobody's talking about an atmosphere without CO2. Uh,
1: but uh, we're getting close to to, uh, to levels where, where, where agriculture can be badly impacted. So I'm going along here with Roger Revell, I think, who had a fairly optimistic view about higher levels of CO2, uh, at least as far as agricultural productivity mm-hmm. is concerned.
0: I'm a little surprised you you emphasize so much the uncertainty, the lack of robustness in all of these uh, climate models, which you say aren't predictions, but merely models. Uh, But you always seem extremely sure of yourself in your own predictions. And I wonder whether uh, uh, you simply have a proclivity toward confidence in your own estimates or whether you think that uh, Most scientists concerned with climate are uh, congenital pessimists and and always come out seeing the worst.
1: That's an interesting question. Um, I I don't have any predictions. Uh, uh, I may have an optimistic point of view about the the world in general, but I think uh, I have a feeling that you share this also because you said that the world will be better off 50 to 100 years from now in terms of standard of living in terms of income. And basically, that's what counts, because uh, we can adapt to any climate change. Human beings can adapt to any climate change quite easily, and the better, the more resources we have, the better off we are, the easier it is to adapt. I mean, after all, uh, human beings adapt to climate change all the time, and in a very substantial way. Um,
0: oh, but now, wait a minute, a minute or two ago, you said we might have been on the verge of falling below a viable level of CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, Are you saying nevertheless the human race could have survived without difficulty if there had been a substantial reduction in CO2?
1: Um, Well, I I don't know where that level is. Uh, The level uh, during some of the recent ice ages was at about 200 parts per million, which is about half let would say about half of what it is now. And that's very low, that's very low. It caused the developments of new types of plants that use CO2 more efficiently. So uh, I, I, hate to, uh, I don't think we'll ever have an atmosphere without CO2.
0: Yeah, let, let me probe just a little deeper. I've heard you talk about acid rain and you were an optimist. I've heard you talk about the ozone layer, and you were an optimist. Correct. I've heard you talk about global warming and climate change, and you're an optimist. By optimist, I mean r- relative to that scientific community that is generally covered in, in most of the, the media. And now my question is, are you really different from, from most of the concerned scientists in in your, your general outlook? Or is it that they are... Uh, uh, They just happen to be working with the wrong models most of the time. Well, let me answer
1: that question. Uh, I think we may be uh, getting off into a new area now, but that's an interesting question. With respect to acid rain, I think I'm really in the mainstream of scientific opinion because the outcome of the national, uh, what is it called, acid uh, precipitation study, NAP and APAP, whatever it was called, uh, was that. uh, Acid rain is no big deal from an environmental point of view. Uh, that the consequences of acid rain. Excuse
0: are, me, is that all over the world, or just in the United States that you're talking about? That was primarily in
1: the United States, I think. Yes, where the problems, and maybe Northern Europe, where the problems are mostly severe. Um, there are, of course, huge local problems in some areas, which come about from uh, mainly from sulfur dioxide. Uh, i was thinking of uh, Czechoslovakia and uh, East Germany. But in, in the United States, it turned out to be no big deal. That is, the acid, acidification of lakes turned out to be due to the soils. Uh, the effect on forests was mi- very minute. So it was not a big problem. With respect to ozone depletion, opinions are very divided. Very correct. Uh, my personal view is that a, uh, the depletions we're talking about, that people are worried about, 5 to 10%, are no big deal either. Uh, if if in fact uh, these depletions do occur, and if ultraviolet radiation rises by 10%, let's say, uh, this is equivalent to uh, moving uh, approximately 60 miles to the south, let's say from here to from Washington to Richmond, uh, because as we move towards the equator, ultraviolet intensities increase. As, uh, as we move from here to Florida, we get a Increase of some hundred percent, and people survive very nicely in these uh, in these regions. Uh, so there, but there, I think uh, there are different scientific views.
0: And the same thing happens if you go to higher elevations. Yes, like, of course. So yes, in
1: Denver, you're. Yes, you're, like, mu- you're exposed too to much. Well, maybe not in Denver because of air pollution, but mm-hmm. let's say at <laughs> Al- altitudes equivalent to Denver. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Incidentally, if you remove the smog from Los Angeles you will have uh, ultraviolet intensities comparable to those of El Paso. And uh, mm-hmm. that uh, seems to be something that people haven't, uh, haven't faced yet.
0: Go ahead. Well, I think uh, you know so much more than I do about the underlying basic science and even about the construction of the meteorological models that the people are working with. But I think we're not very far apart on the question, how alarmed should people be? What we haven't talked about is uh, any policy implications. I tend to believe, and I think you don't, I tend to believe that uh, engaging in very substantial curtailment of carbon dioxide emissions over the coming century would not be much of a of an economic burden in the developing countries. I tend to believe that if we do nothing, the economic burden will probably not be noticeable. But if we did everything required to uh, get emissions down way below where they are now by the middle of the coming century, again, it wouldn't be much of an economic burden, especially because, uh, at least in the developed countries, uh, we're improving our per capita incomes at a reasonably good rate. So that the way, the way I express it, if, if you draw the line of per capita income with a number two pencil on an eight by ten sheet of paper, the difference between doing everything that might be needed to mitigate climate change and doing nothing is about the thickness of the pencil. But similarly, if we do nothing, the impact of climate change is likely to be no more than the thickness of that pencil. So I am neither alarmed that we may engage in unnecessarily drastic mitigation efforts, nor am I terribly alarmed at the prospect that we will fail to. Now, I I do worry, as I said, about developing countries, but I think developing countries would be mistaken to do anything that held back their own development merely in order to reduce their own CO2 emissions for the sake of holding back climate change. They have much more to gain by developing rapidly than by slowing climate change. So I wouldn't argue that we need China, India, Brazil, Nigeria, Egypt in a global effort to curtail emissions. I think they have much more urgent things to do with their own economies. And if they were to worry about the environment, a lot of them have dreadful water sanitation problems, urban air pollution problems, public health problems of all kinds and uh, so i think they they have much higher priorities mm-hmm. than worrying about co2 and climate change
1: you know i completely agree with you uh, as far as the developing countries are concerned i think you're absolutely right that their development problems are much more important to them than any any effect of a changing any effect of a changing climate even if the effects should be negative and i happen to think that they will not be negative but I, I would disagree that uh, uh, we should that we need to curtail emissions drastically, because I think it's absolutely useless unless China, India, and other countries like that do likewise. The impact uh, of our of our actions will be negligible, and that's what worries me.
0: Oh, well, I agree. Now, if if we were to do anything very serious over the coming century it would have to be doing something in countries like China at our expense to decarbonize their energy system. I don't think at their expense there's a chance of it.
1: There are really two ways to go uh, in decarbonizing. One is to go to energy sources which do not burn fossil fuels. And we have, of course, right now, the possibility of nuclear power. Somehow that matter doesn't seem to come up very often in discussion. Uh, or if it does come up, it's it's treated in a very negative way.
0: Well, nuclear power is probably going to be unpopular for another ten or twenty years, but eventually, we may uh, yeah.
1: get rid of it. The other method, of course, is to take the CO two out of the atmosphere. Yeah. Don't worry about cutting emissions, but remove it from the atmosphere. The schemes that have been talked about uh, to have uh, plantations of trees uh, make you know make sense from a uh, uh, physical point of view, whether they make sense from an economic point of view, I'm not prepared to say. But there are other methods like fertilizing the ocean, which will draw out CO2 from the atmosphere, turn it into phytoplankton, provide food for fish, and do all sorts of good things.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't be quite as confident as you on the basis of one experiment in the tropical ocean, but uh, who knows? And I think, no, who knows? And who knows? Uh, I think there, there may be ways to uh, screen out some of the sunlight 50 or 100 years from now, if it turns out to be absolutely necessary.
1: My my optimistic view is that CO2 in the atmosphere will turn out to be an important resource for growing things, including growing fish in the ocean.
0: Well, that's a pleasant note on which to end the conversation, I think. Thank you. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.